From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. On today's show, celebrity chef Deborah Van Treese chimes in for our main ingredient series, and we'll find out some things about Harriet Tubman that you may not have known, but we're beginning with a current battle for survival in Syria. Kurds are evacuating their traditional homeland in northeast Syria. Turkey's pause in military action there expires today. And Turkish leaders won't even call it a ceasefire. And even then, it's been interrupted with periodic clashes. It is a complicated and violent situation unfolding on the other side of the world. Now, Americans are not known for following international news stories, but they are following this one, including here in Georgia. And that is especially true for Christians here. Well, here to talk with us more about it is Dr. Haval Kelly. He's a Syrian-born Georgian, a Kurd. He's an advocate for his country and his people and an Atlanta cardiologist and back with us today. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me here. Timothy Head is also with us. He's executive director of the Faith and Freedom Coalition. That's a politically conservative evangelical group. Tim is also a former missionary who worked in the Middle East. Tim, thank you for being here. Of course. Thanks for having me. Haval, you are of Kurdish descent. So, if you can give us a little bit of a sense of like the Kurdish people, who they are, and before we even get into talking about the conflict. The Kurds are one of the four largest ethnic groups in the Middle East, in addition to the Turks, uh, Persian, and the Arabs. We live there through the centuries of mankind in that region, and the Kurds are about 30 to 40 million occupying the region of Iraq, Iran, Syria, and Turkey, where the intersection is. They were promised some form of a nation in World War One, but that didn't go through. So they had to live under those nations that I mentioned. And because of about almost 30 to 40 million people, they were all these nations were afraid that the Kurds would ever ask for their own country. So they become an oppressive state toward the Kurds. You know, being born a Kurd is almost a target to be a refugee. And your family came here even before 9-11, even before the conflict in, in Iraq, for example, and yeah. Afghanistan. We came, we left Syria in 1996 because of political oppression against my father, who was not a politician, but involved in politics. And we went to Germany, and then and after 9-11, we came to the U.S. as a refugee. On the other hand, my wife, who is a Kurd from, from Iraq, she had to flee the war, go to Turkish camp, and come to the U.S. in the 1990s. Mm -hmm. So every Kurd has a story of its own. Either it was a war, a prosecution, or political oppression. Well, let's look at that, how this is playing out here. 79% of Georgians call themselves Christian, identify as Christian. Good number of Kurds are also Christian. Certainly, the faith teaches that all human beings matter, but folks from plenty of denominations consider other Christians as brothers and sisters of Christ. How does that connect Christians here in Georgia to the Kurds in Syria? So not only is there just kind of that human element, you know, one of the the other strong uh, elements for Faith and Freedom Coalition as an organization is to work on international religious liberty. So the ability not only to to kind of hold to uh, to uh, one's faith across the world, but also to be able to practice that, observe their faith. I think that that element is a, a strong motivator, but also identifier for a lot of Christians here in the United States is recognizing not only on a religious level, but, but certainly on, on just an existential level that um, that distinctions or differentiations among the Kurds uh, and, and other ethnicities and, and maybe religions in a couple of, uh, of contexts in the Middle East, that is connective, uh, for, I think, for a lot, of, a lot of Christians here in the United States. Now, also, 
I think it's worthy of note that even in the Middle East, I would say Kurdish Muslims are probably among the most supportive uh, Muslims in the Middle East of Jews and uh, the nation of Israel. So similarly, a lot of Christians here in the United States clearly are uh, are very pro-Israel, either on a mm-hmm. on a biblical perspective or maybe some uh, sometimes on a, a geopolitical perspective, and um, and so similarly, I think that there's a, a very strategic as well as kind of fostered similarity in in a strong, really support of Israel. This is a complicated, newest tick in what has been already a chaotic situation in Syria for since the civil war began about eight years ago, characterized by Bashar al-Assad, the dictator who has been running Syria, he and his family, for decades now. Hundreds of thousands have been killed, perhaps half a million people killed, thousands of children Here's NPR's Ruth Sherlock reporting last year. This was when the regime attacked rebels and civilians with chemical weapons. And note, this is a disturbing clip, certainly, but I think it's important to show the depth of horror of this conflict. In this video, filmed by activists in the rebel-held town of Ghouta and posted on social media, many of the victims have foam at the mouth. Dead children lie among the adults. Even in death, a man hugs a small baby. In another video posted by opposition activists there, a veiled woman stands in a room and points to the bodies of lifeless children laid out on the floor. Now, I do know that NPR and other news organizations try to verify these uh, videos posted by opposition groups. But, Tim, I want to ask you, before we even get to talking about Turkey... There's a reason why so many people have been watching Syria. You were a missionary in the Middle East, been to Damascus. What does the Bible ask of Christians who hear something like that? Not not just on a biblical level, but but even on a human level. Scripture clearly teaches that we're all uh, that all of us are created actually in the in the image of God. That we kind of carry this imprint of eternity and of uh, our Creator. And so, anytime we witness suffering. You know, our call is to heal, to ameliorate in uh, any time possible, to avoid that pain, obviously. You know, in, in the midst of, of watching these atrocities, we desperately want to find ways to intervene. Well, those kind of humanitarian interventions and those interventions on moral grounds do not always align with the foreign policy goals or the military goals of an administration. And we do know that President Trump pulled U.S. troops out of Syria. This was a week ago he made that announcement quite suddenly. Here is ABC's Ian Panel, who got inside of Syria to report what happened next. This morning, chaos and bloodshed in Syria. This, as a senior U.S. official tells ABC, mass atrocities are being committed against the Kurdish people at the hands of Turkish-backed militias. Some ISIS fighters in prison taking advantage of the mayhem, reportedly escaping, making U.S. positions ever more vulnerable. Turkish forces hammering America's Kurdish allies with the help of radical Islamist militias, some ex-Al-Qaeda, leaving a trail of displacement, destruction and death. Haval, I can only imagine what it's like for you to hear this kind of stuff. Are the people that you know and love okay? Have you spoken with them? We have limited connection. All our family have the back uh, packed and ready to leave any time, but the problem is where they're going to go. They can't go to the northern border where Turkey is shelling the region. They're afraid to go to more inside of Syria because there were actually still a lot of fractional areas where there's pro 
ISIS, you know, villages and areas still want to take revenge of the Kurds because the Kurds were the face of defeating ISIS. I don't know where they're going to end up. Some people say they were driving on the highway and just waiting for some kind of American relief or mm. a United Nations to do something about stopping this. People don't want to leave their home because there's no better option to go to. So what are you thinking and feeling knowing that the U.S. withdrawal left Syrian Kurds who have been U.S. allies vulnerable? Well, it's very, for me, a conflicting feeling. I'm an American, so I feel very ashamed that we left our allies who actually defeated ISIS and they were pro-American values. You ask any veteran on the ground and how they were treated by the Kurds, there's only positive response. And at the same time, I feel disheartened and disappointed as a Kurd because I lost an uncle, like, in the city of Kobani, like, trying to help people, you know, being attacked by ISIS. And at the same time, every Kurd in that region was a pro-American. And now we feel like kind of betrayed that we are left to without any protection. This, that doesn't make sense. People are still, my, my family calls me like, why are you guys doing it to us? I'm kind of like, have the split personality. I'm an American and a Kurd at the same time. Mm-hmm. Haval Kelly, he is a Syrian-born Georgian cardiologist, Timothy head of the Faith and Freedom Coalition. We're talking about what's happening in Syria, but really much more why so many people in Georgia care so deeply about these events. Well, how about for you, Timothy? This, you know, we know that even a lot of very conservative senators, legislators have come down against President Trump for suddenly, um, sort of on the spur of the moment, it seemed, making this decision. How is it for you? The evangelical Christians are a big base of support for President Trump. What happens when you're in in conflict with that? Or are you in this case? Well, um, I, I think in this instance, I, I do think that it, uh, clearly the decision last week to withdraw uh, troops kind of kicked up a hornet's nest. I guess my approach whenever uh, a hornet's nest is kicked first is to try to kind of subside things as much as possible. I appreciate that the vice president and, the, and Secretary of State Pompeo uh, immediately flew uh, and met with uh, with President Erdogan, you know, last, uh, I guess, Thursday was. The Senate and the House on Monday announced bipartisan bills to sanction if indeed Turkey does pursue within uh, within Syria. Uh, there still are a variety of responses, but I think a coalescing response. Uh, there's a watchful eye heavily on on the the next actions of uh, of the Turks. The door was opened, but then we're closing it a little bit and not open. And this is something that people have been speaking out from a lot of different perspectives. American evangelicals here in Georgia and other states. Here's televangelist Pat Robertson saying this of President Trump. It's now allowing the Christians and the Kurds to be massacred by the Turks. And I believe, and I want to say this with great uh, solemnity, the President of the United States is in danger of losing the mandate of heaven if he permits this to happen. Tim, I'm not by any means saying that all evangelicals think alike, but, you know, when you hear a prominent evangelical like that say that, what do you think? If you will, the proof will be in the pudding, because uh, is, uh, so, in, but, the, in but the nature like of the But like Pompeo and, and uh, Vice President Pence are not President Trump. They're, uh, it seems like they are walking around trying to sort of roll back this kind of declaration by him. And I'm just wondering, you know, is that okay? Well, I mean, I, at this point, I, I think rolling back or rolling forward is phases in a long and really complicated response or, or what are going to be evolving and unfolding in the coming uh, days and weeks. President Trump campaigned on this idea of getting out of the endless war that was going on in the Middle East. So what is your position as, as somebody who served as a missionary there, who has seen many Christian and Muslims suffer under these wars? 
drawing the line between the intervention for the sake of morality and what are we going to actually be able to do there? Yeah. So each region of the country of the world has its own local flavor of uh, not only ethnic and religious history, but even personalities that are at play here. And some are trustworthy and some are not, very much not. We already talked about the vice president and the secretary of state flying to uh, to Ankara, but uh, but simultaneously, uh, the Secretary of Defense flies uh, where to Kabul. So for you, Haval, there's been a long game played for the Kurds in in this area of the world. You know, moving from one place to the next, settling in the area that we're talking about, right along the Syrian and, and Turkish border. But this is home to them. They consider this their homeland. Syrian Kurds been occupying the region and living there for like centuries and. I mean, my family at least been there for like hundreds of years, you know, goes back. So it's like our homeland, you know, under, you know, Syria or whatever the countries was. And the Kurds always felt like they were part of their countries. I mean, you know, when you lived in Syria, you, you know, you call yourself, you know, a Kurd from Syria. But the problem, what I'm seeing more and more, that the biggest issue of the Middle East is, unlike Europe or America, the concept of minority is not protected. They enforce national majority and unity by being a nationalist. They say, you got to now, we, it's okay if you're a Kurd or a Christian or something, you are still a Syrian. But when the minority attacks, the majority never stands up for the minority. And that's a huge problem. Unlike in Europe, but in America, it's the opposite. The minority are always protected and defended because if you don't do that, the minority will never belong to that country and never feel the obligation to belong to that country. We're going to take a quick break and be back with my guest, Dr. Haval Kelly. He's a Syrian-born Kurd known as a cardiologist and advocate for refugees in Metro Atlanta. Also with us, Timothy Head of the Faith and Freedom Coalition, two of the many Georgians keeping a close watch on the dynamic situation developing in northern Syria. Please stay with us for more with them and more of On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott, continuing a conversation with representatives from two populations closely watching the aftermath of the withdrawal of troops from Kurdish territory in northern Syria. Dr. Haval Kelly is a cardiologist in Atlanta. He has been very active as an advocate for refugee rights. Also with us, Timothy Head of the Faith and Freedom Coalition. Now, Dr. Kelly is a Syrian-born Kurd with family still in that region. Timothy Head was a missionary in the Middle East, and his coalition is an evangelical group. Other prominent evangelicals, Franklin Graham and Pat Robertson among them, have been quite vocal in opposing President Trump's sudden decision to withdraw U.S. military personnel from the region. But here you are. You're a Muslim from Syria, a Kurdish Muslim from Syria, and we've got a Christian from the United States sitting together and talking about what do you ultimately want for the Kurds to have that kind of sense of inclusion? To have a sense of inclusion and protection by the world. When we uh, lost over 11,000 young men and women fighting ISIS in the Middle East, where nobody wanted to do that fight, and we protected the American soldiers and value to do so, and be left alone now, that's something we should not do as American. That's not our trend and values. And I always say, like, being born a Kurd, you always automatically a refugee at any moment in time. The best thing I gave my son, who's five months old, that he was born in America. Because he's not born with a target on his back being a Kurd. He could proudly say, I'm a Kurdish-American and advocate for American value while he educated the American about his Kurdish ethnicity. 
And I think that's what the world needs to operate like that. So the minorities of any country needs to be protected by the majority. And if any attack on a minority is an attack on the entire country. Timothy Head, I just wondered if you had any thoughts on what uh, Haval was saying, because that has traditionally been a problem that Muslims have not felt protected in the United States, even because they are not the majority religion. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think that there are pockets around the world where majority identification, be it uh, religious, ethnic or, or otherwise, uh, certainly can be uh, complacent and take for granted that status and the luxuries and, and even the uh, the conveniences that come with that. So I agree with you that I, I think it's incumbent on um, on folks to be able to look out for, uh, you know, the way I think of it, it truly is to be their brother's keeper, if you will, or their sister's keeper, as uh, it's taught in Scripture. Uh, the, the conversation is a very complex one because how and where to draw the line, but I think it's really, really important for Americans at this point to recognize that exactly uh, like I've all just alluded to, um, there were eight Americans, actually, in the last uh, last seven years that were killed in um, in that region of the world fighting ISIS. Mm-hmm. And there were uh, almost 11,000 Kurds that lost their lives. You know, I think that it's not only important for us to know that and recognize that, respect that, uh, but also, you know, recognize the cultural likeness that there are so many parallels. It behooves us to give a really, really strong in- investigation into how and to what uh, degree the United States should uh, remain engaged there. I think the United States Congress and ultimately the Trump administration uh, will weigh in uh, rightly in the end. Are you praying for one thing or the other? You know, I don't necessarily approach these things from a a specific end uh, destination in mind. There do have to be conclusive decisions made, no doubt. Uh, But what I really hope for and uh, and truly pray for is an awareness and an appreciation for what is happening on a human level. And I think that when we come to that place of, of knowing what has happened and what is even happening now, uh, I tend to think that the singular solution tends to kind of work itself out. Timothy Head, thank you so much for speaking with us. Of course, thank you. Timothy Head, he's executive director of the Faith and Freedom Coalition. He has been a missionary in the Middle East. And Haval Kelly, thank you very much for being with us. Thank you for having me here. Dr. Haval Kelly is a cardiologist in Atlanta. He's also been a great advocate for immigrants and refugees based in and around the area of Clarkston, Georgia, and the Atlanta metro area. There are some stories that bear repeating over and over. Harriet Tubman's is one. A new movie about the heroic abolitionist known as the Moses of her people is coming out next month. Known for escaping from slavery and helping to establish an underground railroad network to free others, Tubman may also have been Harriet the Spy. Historian and best-selling author Elizabeth Cobbs dives into Tubman's involvement as a nurse and a scout serving the Union Army. She was the first African-American woman to do so. Well, The Tubman Command is a novel, a magic Imagining Tubman's role during a critical point of the war. I spoke with Cobbs when the book first came out and asked her what we know of Harriet Tubman's early life and escape from a Maryland plantation. Yes, well, she was a young woman. She was 27. She was married, which I think a lot of uh, people don't realize. Um, and she wanted her husband to go with her, and he would not. <clears throat> he was actually a free man. And so it's, it's, it's one of these, as love is always complicated, right? She wants him to go, but he doesn't want to leave everything he knows. And so she escapes by herself and on her own. 
And she gets to freedom, and she's 27, it's 1849, you know, long before anybody knows there will be a civil war that slavery will ever end. You know, and there's no knowledge of that. And, um, and she gets to freedom, and she sort of looks at herself and looks at her hands and thinks, you know, how can I, what is it like to be free and have no one you love with you? And to know that everyone you love, especially her, her biological family, her brothers and sisters and mother and father, are trapped. You know, they're behind, they're in chains, um, just, you know, 100 miles away or whatever. And so she decides to go back. And that's what leads Harriet Tubman to become such a famous figure. She goes back. We don't know exactly how many times because every time it was a crime. But she, she's the only person we know of in American history who went back so many times as she did, who freed so many people and was never captured. There's some people who had gone back several times but were ultimately captured. So she's the only person who does this and who gets away. So she's a consummate escape artist. Mm. Um, and she sets up, as you just said, this network. Um, she works with others who are in the part of this larger effort of the Underground Railroad. But she essentially gets people from Maryland, which is the area she knows best and knows like the back of her hand over time, and smuggles them out again and again and again to Canada and New York. But then the crazy thing here is, you know, a lot of abolitionists, once the war breaks out, you know, they do what sensible people do. They let the armies do what armies do, which is to fight it out. But Harriet Tubman goes back. But now she has left, and in, in the book opens, it's May of 1863. She's in South Carolina, low country. How did she get there? Well, she goes there in 1862, and then in 1863, she's planning this raid. And you know what? So this is interesting. She's sent. She's sent by the governor of Massachusetts, who writes, you know, on her behalf and basically says the government needs to pay for her, this woman's travel down to South Carolina. And he recommends her to the, to the man who is the general of the occupied sea islands of, of uh, South Carolina. So these are all occupied or, you know, the ones that the Union is in control of. Um, David Hunter is the commander of those. And he, she's recommended to Hunter as a valuable woman. Now, <laughs> Virginia, I know about you, but I've never been recommended as a governor of anything as a valuable woman, you know, who, Not who needs to be listened to. <laughs> Not yet. Okay. Well, that's true. Um, so she goes and and she's there for a bit over a year before we believe she was, you know, placed in charge of planning this raid or initiated the raid. This is a crucial point in the war. Give us a sense of what's going on strategically in the battle uh, between the North and the South. Why this location, the South Carolina Sea Islands, considered critical to the Union? Yeah, today we would think of this perhaps as a backwater, a quiet, quiet spot. But at the time, uh, you know, no one thought the North was going to win. Even Northerners, most Northerners did not think the North would win. Keep in mind, uh, Virginia, that the South is bigger than all of Europe. Hmm. So consider that. You know, how is, how is a country going to keep another hypothetical country, all the size of Europe, you know, in its grasp. And so the one of the key things they have to do is to blockade the Confederacy to the extent possible because, you know, countries in Europe think this is not going to work out. They're supplying both sides. And so blockade runners are trying to supply the South with uniforms and, you know, guns and gunpowder and all the things that the South has in such limited supply and can't mostly produce for itself. 
And so they have to have the, a base for that Navy. And it's struggling. Oh, my gosh. So this is, the, this is the deepest pit, you might say, of the Civil War. You know, hundreds of thousands have already died. There's no end in sight. So this is before Vicksburg and Gettysburg, which some listeners will know is the big, are the big turning points in the war. Um, and so it looks like the North is going to lose. And it's at this point that Harriet Tubman begins to plan a raid, a daring raid, an unheard of kind of expedition by black soldiers. Um, ultimately, there will be two American gunships that she helps to lead up the Cumbie River, 25 miles into what was then known as enemy territory, if you were a Union officer. Well, you mentioned that she was described by the governor as a valuable woman. But th- let's think, you know, you describe her as a five foot slender woman. She's often photographed, extremely recognizable, $12,000 bounty on her head. Why would she be a good candidate for a spy to lead a or a scout to lead a mission like this? You know, for the very reasons you said, she's five foot tall. She's a tiny little thing, like a strong wind might blow her away. And she looks kind of like nobody, but she must have had one of these faces that's very changeable. She was described, by the way, as good-looking, fine-looking, I should say, on her um, runaway notice, which meant that she was a pretty woman. Uh, And perhaps when she smiled, she was particularly so. But she was also very good at disguise. And I think that people tend to think, you know, a small woman, what's that? You know, she's nothing, uh, whatever. So... This is a novel, right? What What is the true historical record here, and why are you writing it as a novel? What does that allow you to do? Yeah, that's it's such a fabulous question. I, you know, I, I have eight books. This is my eighth book, and five of them are nonfiction, so I mostly have written in nonfiction, as most professional historians do. Um, but I feel that with history... Historians can tell us uh, exactly what the facts are, and historians are not allowed and should never, by our professional standards, make up a single thing. We can't invent a cloud in the sky or, or certainly anything anybody says because dialogue is unrecorded in history. Nobody sits around recording our dialogue. We might have a letter, but we don't know what people said or what they felt on a different, on a particular day. But especially in, in relation to um, important people in history about whom we don't have a lot uh, of a lot of facts. It's kind of what what the fiction allows us to do is to sort of imagine the the plausible scenarios in between the ap- the known facts. I like to say that fiction lights the dark corners of the evidence. Mm. And in relation to women, um, this is particularly helpful because most women's lives are very lightly documented. And so what we know about someone like Harriet Tubman is from other people um, who observed her. She was illiterate, so she never wrote her own. She did not write um, her own memoirs. She had commissioned somebody to do that. But we we don't hear about her in her own voice. Mm. And so if we want to try to think about what Harriet Tubman sounded like. If we want to, you know, walk in her shoes, then this is something that fiction allows us to do. And I'm very conscious as a historian of making sure that it's done in ways that are absolutely consistent with every known fact. My guest is historian and author Elizabeth Cobbs. Her book, The Tubman Command, is a book of historical fiction about Harriet Tubman's real-life role as a scout for the Union Army. Well, I want to pick up on that idea of she thinks at one point to herself in the novel, no one thinks anyone called Moses has a personal life, right? So you are rounding out the character. She's got a history. She has a husband that she left behind. Um, There are plenty of quotes about her, 
but we don't know how she thinks about her own life. Uh, and you write uh, at one point, Harriet Tubman's idea of marriage came from Mama, who thought that that's how matrimony worked. You know, if she was a good wife and Daddy was a strong man, they would be together forever. But Harriet knew that marriage was like a bizarre children's game. Uh, why? Why did you want to start at this point of, of telling a story about the complications of her own romantic unions? Well, I wanted to understand better and portray what motivated Harriet Tubman. Mm. You know, we think of someone, well, they're just born a hero, right? Okay, great. They're born a hero. I wasn't good. I don't have to, <laughs> I don't have to act heroically in my own life, right? Um, but what motivates someone who, who chooses again and again to do these heroic things? And, and I thought, you know, one way to do that is to, you know, walk and try to walk into her own heart. And I think partly it's like, in a way, we don't want our women leaders to have personal lives hmm. because that disqualifies them as leaders. It's sort of like men can have these family things on the side, and you know that's not, that's not really in the way of what they're going to do in life. And for women, you know, we sort of strip out those parts of the story. If we think a woman is heroic, then we want them to be the virginal Joan of Arc. <laughs> it's okay. She's burned at the stake. Hey, she does good stuff. <laughs> um, but with Harriet Tubman, I mean, here's a woman who, you know, who was married twice, both times to men um, who apparently found her absolutely irresistible. Uh, her first husband, as I mentioned, was a free man, and he lived in a part of the South, the Upper South, where half of the African-American population was free and half was enslaved. Talk about complicated lives. And so he could have, you know, found another woman to marry, but apparently he decided to marry a woman who was so in love with her that he was willing to court and marry a woman who, by whom he would have slave children, and they wouldn't belong to him. Uh, so that what a tremendous sacrifice that would be for any man to make. And then she left him because <laughs> she wanted freedom. So that's kind of where the novel starts is how she feels about having left him and then knowing that after she leaves, he takes another wife. I'm thinking there are so many books written about this tiny, fierce, remarkable woman. You're, but telling this story as a novel and giving her, I don't know, in the popular imagination, uh, it's enough to be an abolitionist hero, right? But a spy, you know, a scout, somebody who did this furtive mission gives it a whole different luster. And and I'm wondering if you can reach different audiences than you might with a nonfiction historical tome. Absolutely. No, I mean, I want people who go to the beach. <laughs> I to want read people about who are you know, sitting in their bathtubs, right, who are reading, a, you can't stop reading and you know, can't turn out the light at night and have to keep going. I think fiction reaches a different part of our brains and a different part of our hearts. I want the world to know why Harriet Tubman should be on the $20 bill. She's our most outstanding female patriot in American history. That is my earlier conversation with author Elizabeth Cobbs. Her latest novel, The Tubman Command, imagines what life could have been like for Harriet Tubman as the first African-American woman to serve in the military. The film Harriet comes out next month. Coming up, a powerful Chamber of Commerce celebrates its birthday, and celebrity chef Deborah Van Treese rescues the long-suffering succotash. I'm Virginia Prescott. Stay with us for more of On Second Thought.
From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. The Metro Atlanta Chamber of Commerce is marking its 160th anniversary. For average Georgians who don't own a business, a Chamber of Commerce may not seem to impact our everyday lives. In fact, the Metro Atlanta Chamber has a lot of influence over life in Georgia, ranging from transportation options to wages to attracting a Super Bowl to the design of our state flag. GPB's All Things Considered host Ricky Bevington sat down with Chamber President... Hala Modelmog to explain. What aspects of life in Georgia does the Metro Atlanta Chamber focus its energy and influence? The two or three things that we have focused on for a very long time are education, transportation and transit, and just access to what people need in the market. We want a quality of life here, places that are good to live in from a cultural standpoint, where people are welcomed here, where they can have a great cost of living and a great job. According to the chamber, 40,000 millennials moved to Metro Atlanta from a different state last year. Gen Z represents 27% of the area. What are the most important ways that Georgia businesses need to adapt immediately in order to attract and adapt to a changing workforce? I was on a panel the other day, and someone asked me, um, what do you think about millennials? The question itself implied that there was something wrong with millennials, and I am here to tell you there is nothing wrong with millennials, and there's nothing wrong with Gen Z. They're smart. They're passionate. They want things to move, and frankly, they represent you know over 50% of the workforce in most cases, and larger in, in some others. So we need to make sure as baby boomers and people who are CEOs in Gen X situations that we recognize, appreciate, make sure these next-generation talent gets educated, and that they want to work for us, and furthermore, that they want to live in Atlanta. As for attracting new businesses, however, our state and cities are handing out ever-larger tax subsidies to private enterprises. Controversially, in some cases, Georgia's failed bid to bring Amazon's new East Coast headquarters and more than a billion dollars to be given over to redevelop the Gulch in downtown Atlanta. That tax handout is still in court. Does the Metro Atlanta Chamber anticipate a time when billion-dollar tax subsidies are no longer politically tenable? You know, it's interesting. I do believe that people deserve to understand how incentives are used and how they're not. And in my personal opinion, there are sometimes that they are absolutely appropriate, the gulch being one, because we had to have that that <laughs> that hole in the ground raised up before anything could be built. And then there's sometimes that there's a development that doesn't need any incentives. So I think people have to be um, have to take a step back and understand what are the projects that won't happen without an incentive and what are the projects that are going to happen anyway? The Metro Atlanta Chamber is not afraid of a difficult political fight. There are plenty of examples. The two I will mention are the Chamber's efforts to remove Confederate symbols from the state flag. That was the early 2000s. And just as recently as 2016, the Chamber worked to defeat what's uh, often called religious liberty legislation. Why is it in the interest of companies for the chamber to wade into political debates? Well, you know, we get right back to that talent attraction. People don't want to live in a market that they feel like they're not all welcome. And we need to make sure that people feel comfortable living here and moving here to work. Often these debates fall along urban-rural lines. You grew up in rural Georgia? Yes, I did. 
And you went to Georgia Southern. You went to University of Georgia. You have a personal perspective on how Atlanta is viewed by other parts of the state. That's really important, I would imagine, for your job. So what happens when the Metro Atlanta Chamber finds itself at odds with, say, the Georgia Chamber or maybe a local Chamber of Commerce? Well, you know, we actually really stay fairly closely aligned with the Georgia Chamber, for instance. I I think we're probably aligned with them 90% of the time. And, you know, I I kind of appreciate your saying uh, the bit about my background because I do try to take into consideration all of Georgia because rural Georgia is very important and I care deeply about it. I have family who still live in rural Georgia. And I'd like to think that the vast majority of the things that we drive in metro Atlanta are good for the whole state. When the chamber was founded 160 years ago, it was really to protect railroad interests, which is the founding of the city of Atlanta. What do you think those guys would say to you today? <laughs> That's a great question. I think they'd probably be a little bit flabbergasted, frankly, because that was a long time ago, as you know. And I think their interests were probably very pure. And I would think they'd say, wow, you guys have taken on a lot of social issues. But I think if they also took a look at history in more general terms, that they would understand that those social issues had to be addressed. And if Atlanta hadn't addressed them, we wouldn't be Atlanta today. Our colleague Ricky Bevington with Hala Model Mug, a member of GPB's Telecommunications Commission Board. We're heading into the kitchen for a new main ingredient. That's our occasional series asking chefs to tell us about an essential southern ingredient. And today, it's Deborah Van Treese, who is used to being the only person of color in the room. And she has been in a lot of rooms. There were constantly things in my life that, you know, I was the only, and I'm an only child on top of that. You know, so it's something that, you know, I was really used to it. That was the norm for me. Now it is, it is more prevalent to me. It is something that my eyes are wide open to uh, because there has been a shift you know, in the culinary field. I've been in the industry for about 20 years now. You know, so I've watched the shift change and you know, watched chefs become superstars uh, and watched the arrogance grow. And you know, now it's become you know, a career that's really sought after. Uh, And a lot of it is because you can become a TV star by doing this. So now the the tables are a little bit different. And, you know, you you would be crazy not to have your eyes open and see a lot of the, you know, inequalities and inconsistencies in the culinary field right now. Van Treese wants everyone to feel welcome at Twisted Soul Cookhouse and Pours. That's her Midtown Atlanta restaurant. Its decor, its vibe, and its food reflect the many miles Deborah has covered as a flight attendant and the many meals she enjoyed along the way. Like I've done France and Spain and Italy and Israel. Um, and each, each place, there was you know, something different, but welcoming all in the same. You know, I went to Israel, um, actually, Karat Shimona, 
Kiryat Shimona, Israel. It was 25 kilometers uh, from the Lebanese border where you could hear bombs dropping. Uh, but we had dinner on a kibbutz. And of course, you know, this young black girl from Kansas City had no idea what a kibbutz was at that particular time. Uh, but I learned. And, you know, the fellowship of, of even that and opening, you know, up this kibbutz to us. And, you know, we're eating food that had been farmed right there. Um, and all these families together and sharing stories. And, you know, there's candles and we're sitting on the ground and just breaking bread together. You know, communication, sometimes it goes beyond verbal. You know, the communication is also in the spirit of food. Those are things that, you know, happen everywhere you go. That's my family. You know, they were the same way. You show up and, you know, we're going to first ask you, are you hungry? And if you're hungry, even if you're not, we're going to try our best to make you sit there and eat. Um, and there was always enough to share. Sharing in itself is, you know, to me, just a form of love. You know, so... Van Trees is among the female and minority celebrity chefs who traveled to 20 cities for the 2018 James Beard Foundation Celebrity Chef Tour. Along the way, she celebrated and adapted recipes for the food tradition that lies at the heart of what she does, soul food. It's not given the same respect as other cultures. Through my experience, I've even had people challenge me as to why I you know, choose to always do food like that. And to me, that's a huge slap in the face. Of course, I've competed, you know, I've done Food Network, I've had, you know, opportunities that are amazing. And it has amazed me that sometime in those realms is where I'm hearing are getting the pushback. And for me, I'm like, no one asks Italians why you cook Italian food. No one asks a Mexican, why do you cook Mexican food? Why would you question an African-American for cooking the food that they grew up with? That is something that needs to change. To take something that is basically cast away and be able to turn it into something delicious is a trick of a magician. And that's what soul food was and, and still is. We have a, a trend now amongst culinary professionals, um, and it's not a trend, it's actually just where we've made it to, where we've evolved to, where sustainability is a huge part of most of our professional kitchens. We have been, as African Americans, sustaining for a long time. We have been using those cuts of meats that people were throwing away, and we still continue to do so. Our food is sometimes considered unhealthy, and that's not true either. We you know, were slaves who were farming lands and practicing organic practices long before it became popular. Now it's popular, and it's, it's what's in fashion. And you know, some of those black farmers are even being forgotten for the the things they've done you know to help you know create this incredible place we are becoming you know now the connection between food and the soul infuses her work she's talked about it a lot in interviews and in forums about food and culture 
That connection is embodied in okra, the southern staple that has been celebrated or looked down upon, depending on who you ask, for a long time. Van Trees is team okra all the way and has been since her mother encouraged her while she was playing around in the kitchen as a teenager. I really started cooking seventh grade, um, stepping outside of my comfort zone, stepping outside of the box. You know, wanting to create dishes that I'd never, ever seen before, let alone taste. Um, and then with traveling, it just expanded and, and got bigger and bigger. But there were certain things that I always wanted when I went home to my mom's house. And one of those dishes? Succotash. I grew up eating okra every kind of way. I don't care if it's slimy. I don't, does not turn me off at all. So boiled, steamed, in gumbos, and in succotash. The summers, you know, my mom would, you know, get fresh corn, cut the corn off the cob, you know, fresh okra, fresh tomatoes out of her garden, onions, and make this incredible dish. And I could just sit and eat that. You know, I don't need a protein, you know, no meat, just eating that. You know, was sustaining me completely. I like it over rice. You know, if I wanted, I could add some chicken. I can add some shrimp. You could add sausage. You know, it's so many ways you can go with okra. Chef Deborah Van Trees took us into the kitchen at the Twisted Soul Cookhouse in Pores to show us how she makes her own succotash, beginning as many good recipes do with bacon. So I'm gonna get my pan hot. And I like cast iron. So I'm gonna place the bacon in a hot pan. You could actually cook the bacon in the oven as long as you reserve the fat and then start with the skillet. Obviously you've been doing this for a long time. I've been doing this a while. But I'm wondering about, you were talking earlier about how this particular dish connects you to your mom. Mm-hmm. Is that something that you're aware of when you're there on the line? Um, you know, I think so. Because um, if know, you do it all the time, I imagine it can become automatic. It can become automatic, but, you know, I am one, you know, that most people um, who work with me, and I tell them all the time, I taste everything. You know, it's like I taste, you know, I go through so many tasting spoons, it's ridiculous. Um, and I taste everything. So, you know, when I'm back here and I'm sending out a plate, I know every plate I touch what it tastes like. Yeah, so I, I don't, ooh, excuse me. What's that I you're putting in there now? This is um, like salt, mm -hmm. salt, pepper, garlic powder, onion powder, all mixed up together. <laughs> so we've added jalapenos, we've got garlic, onion, the corn, the okra. We cooked the bacon, I crumbled it up and top, and basically we're done with the dish. And then we'll eat. <laughs> All right, I have to taste this. Okay. It looks beautiful. Mmm. So good. Oh my gosh, it's delicious. And the corn. Mm -hmm. Fresh and fresh lovely, and yeah. how do you get corn off the cob easily? Um, I always make a big old mess. 
I usually take a sheet pan, mm -hmm. you know, like a pretty good size one, or a cooking sheet, cookie sheet, and um, a smaller knife and just shave straight down. Yeah, but that way it gives the kernels places to fall. It was a beautiful, colorful, delicious fall dish, and I could eat it pretty much any season. Chef Deborah Van Trees there serving up succotash with her main ingredient, okra. We have the full recipe and pictures from our visit on our website, gpbnews.org. And you can tweet us your pictures at OST Talk when you decide to make it. On Second Thought is produced by Amelia Brock, LaRaven Taylor, Priya Mahadevan, and Jake Troyer. Jesse Nicewanger is our engineer. Our interns are Alexis Thomason and Jessica Lowell. Don Smith is our Dean of Grammar. Amy Kiley is senior producer. Our executive producer is Mary Lynn Ryan. I'm Virginia Prescott. Thanks so much for spending some time with On Second Thought. <laughs>